Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to just tell you, I also have added some extra pictures to this presentation after I handed the presentation into the, to the committee. So I have my email address right here. You all can copy this down, and then also we'll show it at the end of, again at the end of the presentation. And you can email me in case you want to get the updated version of this presentation. So today we're going to be talking about dermatologic concerns in pregnancy. And if you all have ever seen a pregnant patient, which I'm sure you have, you understand that this is a big concern, whether it's a concern to you, a concern to the patient, or actually even sometimes both. You'll remember that pregnant patients are very, very worried about everything. They worry about things that are not a big deal. They worry about things that are a big deal. So when these patients come into your office, just know you're probably going to need to spend a little bit, little bit more time with them, a little more hand-holding. Um, but hopefully, I'll give you some tips on how to, how to recognize these diseases and get through them as well. So I would like to begin by talking about some of the normal physiologic changes that occur in pregnancy in the skin. And uh, just like I talked about yesterday, I think it's important to know of these normal changes so that the patient who comes in who's kind of frightened about what's happening to their skin, you can look at it and calm them immediately. So one thing to know is, of course, the melanocytes um, start to change and sort of become more active in a way. Uh, you can have localized darkening of the areola, plus you do see a lot of changes in, in moles. Um, additionally, women will develop melasma, some women. It occurs in about 50 to 75% of pregnant women. This will sometimes change or fade after pregnancy, um, and sometimes it takes a very long time, years, and sometimes it does not change at all. During pregnancy, the hair usually thickens, and it's not really that the hair shaft itself is getting thicker, it's that the patient really isn't losing as much hair. Um, it kind of Everything goes from that antigen to that um, antigen phase, and then just sort of stops uh, after that. The sweat glands may become more active. They may be noticing that they're sweating more. The patients may notice that they're developing some spider angiomas on the face and on the chest, and that might be a concern to them. Those usually do recede after pregnancy is over. Um, they can start to develop more varicosities, which honestly don't usually go away after pregnancy but you can always ask them to wear compression hose, for example. Um, they might have some striae gravidarum, and we'll go over that as well. And those are stretch marks. Um, and most people know that that is a normal change of pregnancy and weight gain, and sometimes adolescence as people grow as well. And then there can be um, an emergence of tumors, such as pyogenic granuloma, um, and I'll show you a picture of that, and acrocordon or skin tags. This is an example of the linea nigra. Now, the linea nigra is a very common um, occurrence in people with uh, skin of color. As you can see, this woman has a linea nigra that extends right from the umbilicus in the midline of the abdomen down to the pubic symphysis down here, and then also when developing superior to the abdomen. Now, most women in skin of color will have the portion of the linea nigra that extends below the umbilicus. But usually in pregnancy, they start to develop one going above. This is completely normal, and there's also not a treatment, but um, it will fade after they deliver. 
The one um, that goes superiorly will fade. The one inferiorly does not, usually. This is another example of linea nigra, extending superiorly from the umbilicus. This is an example of melasma. Now, what you usually see in melasma is this kind of mottled, um, not with indiscreet borders, brown pigmentation, sometimes has a little gray color to it. It's usually on the malar surfaces of the cheeks and also can be on the forehead. It usually spares right around the eyes, periocularly. Now, the etiology of melasma is a little bit unclear. It's, not, it's thought to be a play interplay between UV radiation um, and fluctuating hormone levels because you can see it really develop mostly in pregnancy, uh, oral contraceptive use, uh, but also you can see it outside of these uh, periods as well, um, mostly in women. Prevention usually involves sunscreen and photoprotection. Now, some of, some of your patients will say, well, gosh, you know, I, I do that and still develop melasma. But these patients with melasma need to be extra, extra careful about that. Now, melasma is a talk in and of itself, but I just, I just kind of threw a couple slides in here of the, um, for, of treatment for normal physiologic conditions associated with pregnancy, just two, and because these are the ones that you'll be asked about. So as I said, melasma is a talk among itself. It is a huge topic, but just know that the one thing that has been shown to be most effective is the triple therapy, um, which consists of hydroquinone, a fluorinated steroid, and tretinoin, and there is a brand name for that, and I'll, I'll tell you um, if you come up later, but we're really not, I'm not promoting that, that brand name as well. So I didn't put it in my slide. But that's been shown to be the most effective. Now, you can also suggest laser therapy or peels to your patients. Just know that these therapies really have mixed results in women with skin of color. Sometimes they have a hyper, a resulting hyperpigmentation, which is not what you're going for if you're trying to get rid of hyperpigmentation. So you just really need to be careful about that. This is a picture of striae gravidarum, or stretch marks. And I'm sure everyone has seen these at some point. Notice that you have um, just this very uneven skin texture. And these stretch marks are likely older because they don't have the erythematous look to them that most newer stretch marks have. It's, they're usually either pink or red or kind of sometimes even purple such as these right in here. And the reason why I point that out is because there are different therapies that will work better for newer versus older stretch marks. So in a study by McAvoy, who looked at preventing stretch marks, he looked at olive oil, cocoa butter, um, some of the products that have alpha hydroxy acids in them, um, because these are the things that people want to know. How do I prevent stretch marks from, from occurring? He did not find any statistical significance between the people who used some of the products with act, active ingredients versus placebo versus nothing. In terms of the treatment for stretch marks, you can try tretinoin, alpha hydroxy um, products, acid products, massage oils, glycolic and TCA peels, uh, PDL or pulse dye laser is good to help get rid of the erythema that is associated with the newer stretch marks, but will do nothing for the texture of the, of the skin. And then the ablative lasers 
may help with the texture of the skin, but won't necessarily help with the erythema. Fractional photothermolysis has been tried as well as microdermabrasion. The conclusion in this study, which is from, admittedly from 2009, and so perhaps um, some of the modalities are a little bit different at this time in terms of, of their efficacy, but this study showed that no modality really takes care of the stretch marks completely, um, makes them go away, makes the skin like new, et cetera. Um, and basically called for more research to be done. This is a picture of a pyogenic granuloma. And as you know, these tumors are composed of many, many blood vessels, and they bleed very, very easily. Pregnant women who have never had one of these before um, usually will get one on their gingiva or on their face. And it's very stressing because they do bleed so very easily. Um, and like I said, pregnant women are pretty much nervous about everything, and especially something like this. So what would you do about this? You can very easily excise it, do a small excision. You can ED and see it. Just remember with pyogenic granulomas in general, you need to burn the base, otherwise they will recur. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the dermatoses associated with pregnancy. And really there are four. Atopic eruption of pregnancy, which occurs in early pregnancy, polymorphic eruption of pregnancy, pemphigoid gestationis, and intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, and all of those last three occur later in pregnancy. Atopic eruption of pregnancy is the number one pregnancy-specific dermatosis. It incorporates several different uh, older uh, ter terminology for, for skin eruptions associated with pregnancy, including atopic dermatitis arising in pregnancy, prurigo of pregnancy, and pruritic or sterile folliculitis of pregnancy. Usually these patients do not have um, any type of uh, atopic eruption of pregnancy before pregnancy or right, right during, but they do usually have um, a history of atopic dermatitis. And it's thought that this type of skin disease does occur because there's a tilting of the immune system from the Th1 to the Th2 type immunity, which is more of the humoral uh, immunity, as you know. Um, the patients also often have a family history of atopic dermatitis. They may have elevated total IgE levels. Um, and you also may see a peripheral eosinophilia. So who gets atopic eruption of pregnancy? Well, primogravid, so first-time pregnant patients, rather than multiparous patients or people who've had children before, um, usually it's, you see it in someone who is a singleton, so they only have one baby inside of their uterus. It appears early in pregnancy, as I said, usually in the, second, the first trimester or the early second trimester. And for 80% of the patients, it's the first eruption of atopic dermatitis. So there are different types of um, atopic eruption of pregnancy. There's an E-type, which is more like an eczematous process, and I'll show you some pictures of that. And there's a P-type that is more of a papular process with parigo nodules. The pruritus associated with this disease is more often worse at night. These are some pictures of atopic eruption of pregnancy, and you can see that we have some that are typical for uh, atopic dermatitis, some, some presentations, meaning that they're on the uh, flexural surfaces here. Um, and it's also not uncommon to have some papules on the chest as well. 
Atopic eruption of pregnancy um, really has some non-specific histologic findings, so it's not very fruitful to biopsy these patients. You may biopsy them to rule out something else. Um, the other dermatoses that we're going to talk about today, like pemphigoid gestationis, for example, um, just know that some a good portion of them will have elevated eosinophilia and um, elevated IgE levels uh, if you test for that, but it's not a conclusive diagnosis if you do. The fetus in this disease is unaffected. There aren't any, um, there's nothing that you need to monitor for and there's nothing that you need to worry about in terms of de early delivery. Um, and it usually, the fetus usually does not have any cutaneous involvement as well. Future pregnancies, um, you, in future pregnancies, you may see a recurrence, just know that. Um, but otherwise, this disease really it only affects the mother and not the baby, and there's really not a lot of morbidity for either one of them. So in terms of the treatment for AAP, you really just want to emphasize gentle skin care. It's just like atopic dermatitis. Um, you could give them antihistamines to help with the itching, generous lubrication as well. Um, you can treat this disease entity with UVB, and let me just throw in a, cave a caveat about UVB. I was recently at a lecture um, where they were telling us about some recent um, research with UVB and that women who have, for example, psoriasis, um, that are being treated with UVB have lower folic acid levels. And so they should be supplemented, especially if they're in reproductive, um, in their reproductive years, in case they were to get pregnant. As you probably know, low folic acid levels have been associated with neural tube defects. So the reason why I didn't put that in this presentation, though, is because I've been searching and searching and searching for that source. Um, it was supposed to be just two, 2014 mid-year and um, just a, like a month ago, and, and I can't find it anywhere. But I did thought, think to mention it to you. You can use prednisolone for these patients if their AEP is really bad. And prednisolone rather than prednisone is, is really... Um, you know, it, it is the drug of choice because it does not cross the placenta. Um, but prednisone in a pinch, because a lot of hospitals have more prednisone on hand, is also an okay choice. Be careful about um, the type of soaps that these patients are using. Americans in general are really uh, over soaping when they take a shower. The, Pregnant patient really needs to wash their groin and their axilla, maybe their feet, and really not dry out the rest of their skin, especially if they're using an antibacterial soap. You should probably tell them to switch it up a bit, um, maybe go for more of a sensitive skin soap because that will be less stripping to the skin. There are some related conditions that um, have kind of fallen under this umbrella of AAP. And that is perigo of pregnancy, which has really been more encompassed into the P type of AEP, and uh, pruritic folliculitis of pregnancy as well, or sterile folliculitis. And I'll show you some pictures of those. This is a picture of the perigo of pregnancy. And as you can see, this patient just has erythematous papules on her abdomen. Some of them look a little excoriated, like she's been picking at them. 
And then this is a picture of the sterile folliculitis and a close-up here where you can really see this, um, this kind of pustule here, except it is sterile, sterile folliculitis. We're going to move on now to polymorphic eruption of pregnancy. And you all may remember this disease entity actually is something that was termed pruritic um, and urticarial papules and plaques of pregnancy, so PUP. And it has been renamed. So just know if someone says um, PEP, or polymorphic eruption of pregnancy, that, that they're talking about the same thing. And it is the second most common pregnancy-related skin condition. Um, it is most common late in pregnancy, however, as opposed to um, AEP. And it is most common in the third trimester. It's associated, again, with permigravid, so first-time pregnancies, women with multiple gestations, and it's also related to weight gain and distension. So no one really knows why this occurs, but because it is more common in women who have multiple gestations, it's their first pregnancy, it's thought that the mechanical stretching of the skin has something to do with the development of this disease. What I want to stress when you think of PEP, or PUP, same thing, is think about the fact that it always begins in the abdominal stria as opposed to um, pemphigoid gestationis, and we're gonna go over that in just a minute. But this is a good way to differentiate those two things. Um, it usually actually spares the umbilicus, whereas pemphigoid gestationis usually starts periumbilically. And um, then after starting in the stria of the abdomen, it spreads to the breasts and the thighs and the arms. Um, and it can be very severe and spread to the face as well, palms and soles. If you see lesions on the palms or the soles in a pregnant woman, uh, definitely biopsy because you want to make sure that it's not pemphigoid gestationis, which does have fetal consequences. This does not. This is a picture of uh, PEP. And so I wanted to show first um, her stretch marks. And then as you get a little closer, you see some erythema developing and also um, it's not projecting great, but you can see this kind of, oh, flat-topped papules, and they're coalescing here to, to form more of an erythematous plaque, and these are extremely itchy. Here's some more discrete papules, and you can see a little bit more easily uh, on the arm as well. And here again, you can see that these are sort of flat-topped, plateauish papules that coalesce. Very, very itchy. Now, this is what I was talking about. So if your patient came in with these lesions on their palms and their soles, you know, a PUP or, or um, PEP is not the first thing that you would think of. Um, but it did turn out, this was a patient that I had in my OBGYN residency, um, it did turn out that this was, at the time, it was um, called PUP, but polymorphic eruption of pregnancy. But more so, this would be um, a presentation more similar to pemphigoid gestationis. So in terms of diagnosing polymorphic eruption of pregnancy. Most of, most of the time, it's a clinical diagnosis. If you see a patient, pregnant patient, large abdomen um, with the flat-topped erythematous papules coalescing in the stria of their abdomen, 
it's a pretty much a slam dunk. Um, but occasionally you will have, you, you should biopsy it, especially if it's on the palms or the soles like we were talking about. And in that case, you want uh, to send the specimen not only for H&E but for, for immunofluorescence because that is what's going to distinguish it from pemphigoid gestationis, which like I said, has fetal consequences. So in these, in these diseases, honestly, it's all about triaging people into bothersome but not dangerous and bothersome and dangerous. So this one is bothersome but not dangerous. As I said, there's um, PEP does not alter the course of pregnancy. There aren't any fetal cutaneous effects or otherwise. Uh, it's unlikely to recur in subsequent pregnancies, and the thought is, is that the skin is not distending like it was in that first pregnancy as well and it does not recur with oral contraception. It's self-limited, it usually resolves within six weeks of delivery, and that's not to say that we don't do anything about it. Again, you're going to recommend the gentle skin cleansing like you um, always do for your patients, but you can also use topical steroids, um, and you can even use a high-potency steroid if, if you need to. These patients are very itchy, um, they really do want some help, and um, you can use some prednisolone if, if all else fails. Pemphigoid gestationis, so we've alluded to it a couple times. It used to be called herpes gestationis, and some of you may remember it as um, under that terminology. It's rare, it's an autoimmune uh, vesiculobullous disease. Basically think of pemphigoid gestationis as being the pregnant counter counterpart of BP. Um, they have the same look under the microscope, but it only occurs in pregnant women, um, and bullous pemphigoid, as you know, occurs in the elderly. The incidence is about one in 50,000 pregnancies. It is associated with HLA types DR3 and DR4, um, and it is more common if a pregnant patient has a mole or choriocarcinoma in um, any individual. It usually begins in the late second to third trimester, so remember this one also is late. And the skin lesions are usually pruritic, urticarial, and vesicular. Um, and it often begins in the periumbilical region. So again, as opposed to PEP, or what used to be called PUP, um, which spares the umbilicus, this one usually starts periumbilically. And I have a picture to show you that. Okay, so. Here we have um, several patients with herpes gestationis, and as you can see, all of them are affected around the umbilicus. This patient is a little bit less than the others, but still you can see the erythema there as well. And you can also see in the next picture, this is a little bit better picture for the, the vesicles. Sometimes you can also have, and again, note the umbilicus, you have uh, bulla and vesicles forming on the hands. And remember that picture of the palms and the soles. This is, that's one reason why that could, this entity could be, that picture of the patient with PEP was confused with um, pemphigoid gestationis. So how do you diagnose pemphigoid gestationis? Well, the biopsy is key, and it's really the IF. Um, you're going to see a very, very characteristic look to the IF, linear deposition of C3, sometimes IgG on the uh, dermal, epidermal junction. And um, like I said, it's not the H&E, it's, it's the IF. So the babies, the 
the fetuses of, of women with um, pemphigoid gestationis can have growth restriction, and you may see skin lesions on the baby as well. So this entity can recur in subsequent pregnancies, and sometimes people will actually show anticipation with this disease, meaning that it occurs earlier and it occurs more severely with each pregnancy, each subsequent pregnancy. There can be postpartum flares as well, so these people need to be followed for about six weeks to sometimes three months after delivery. This is just a slide reviewing where you should biopsy in a bullous disease. So, of course, this is the blister, okay? And for routine histology, you want to biopsy right at the junction of the blister and the normal skin. But for IF, you want to biopsy away from the lesion. So everyone should remember that. Um, this is very, this is something that we see residents make a mistake about all the time. Um, you do not, the IF studies are basically null if you, do, if you biopsy at the blister, at the bulla, okay? And this is just a reminder for dermatitis hepatiformis, you want to be far, far away from, from the blister. So we're going to talk about the treatment for pemphigoid gestationis. What do, you, what, what do you do for these people? Again, antihistamines for the pruritus. Um, you can use a mid-potency steroid to help with, with um, some of the skin lesions and prednis alone. We're going to now switch gears and talk about intrahepatic uh, cholestasis of pregnancy. Now, if you, you may not have had a patient like this before, but if you have, the one thing that you notice is the glaring lack of skin lesions. So you might be asking, well, why is this a derm problem? Why are you presenting this? Many patients will be referred to you, however, because of their secondary skin lesions, all of the excoriations from their scratching, and, um, and maybe even some super infection of their skin. And their OBGYN, although they are you, most OBGYNs really do understand this disease process. They always wonder, can something be done to be helped with this itching? It's, it's horrible, debilitating itching. So this is a um, disease that presents late, usually in the third trimester. And it, like I said, it does not have any specific skin lesions, but mostly you'll see excoriations. The problem with these patients is that they have impaired bile acid secretion. Um, and so while the mother's morbidity is mostly in the form of itching, there are some serious fetal effects that can occur, such as prematurity and stillbirth. Um, there also is a risk of hemorrhage. Um, it's been associated with vitamin K deficiency in both the mother and the child. Usually you're going to work with your OBGYN because these patients do need extra fetal monitoring. In fact, usually at about 40, 34 weeks, um, the OBGYN will start to do non-stress tests or, or the type of monitoring that observes, that looks at the baby's heart rate. Those huge belts go around the, the abdomen with the monitors there. And usually once the babies hit about 37 to 38 weeks, the OBGYN will elect for early delivery because there is a risk of stillbirth with this disease. Ursodeoxycholic acid is usually the, the treatment, and that's usually prescribed by the OBGYN. Antihistamines will not usually work in these patients. 
as well because you really just need something that helps to lower those bile acids. The pruritus stops after delivery, usually, um, and this recurs in subsequent pregnancies about 70% of the time. And it also can recur with oral contraception. So this is a chart to just kind of highlight some of the points. How do you differentiate one of these disease entities from another? Um, and so the first thing to note is, are you seeing the skin lesions early in pregnancy or late in pregnancy? So remember, atopic eruption of pregnancy is really the only one that occurs early. Um, it occurs mostly on the flexural surface, just surfaces just like atopic dermatitis, and there's a possible recurrence. PEP, or polymorphic eruption of pregnancy, and um, pemphigoid gestationis are the two that you're gonna wanna really differentiate one from the other because they both occur late, but remember, um, PEP spares the umbilicus, and PG often starts periumbilically. PEP is unlikely to recur in subsequent pregnancies, and PG is likely to recur. And it might, may have anticipation, so it might be earlier in the subsequent pregnancies and worse. Intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy, again, remember, just secondary skin findings, nothing that, that you'll actually see on the skin. But it is the one that has the most serious fetal consequences. And in terms of the labs that you might order, remember if you're going to look for a bi if you're going to biopsy and look for anything, remember to biopsy for IF um, away from the skin lesion, but not remotely. And um, that, especially for pemphigoid gestationis, you're going to have that that linear band on IF at the dermal junction. We're going to talk about psoriasis for just a moment. This is not a derm dermatosis of pregnancy, but um, people with psoriasis obviously become pregnant. So what is their psoriasis going to do when they become pregnant? So 40 to 60% of your patients will actually improve in pregnancy, and this has to do with that, that uh, immunity shift that we were talking about. But 10 to 20% of your patients will have an exacerbation. Um, there is something called impetigo hepatiformis, and basically it's thought to be a very, very close relative, if not the same thing, as pustular psoriasis. And so you really do need to look out for um, this in pregnancy. So because it is associated with maternal hypocalcemia, which can lead to convulsions and tetany, um, it's associated with placental insufficiency and stillbirth. If a patient, if it, a psoriasis patient or someone who, even who does not have a, a history of psoriasis presents like this to you and they're pregnant, you want to treat them with cyclosporin. It's very serious. This is a picture of impetigo hepatiformis. And unfortunately, you can't see the pustules as well as I would, I would like you to. But um, basically, this looks just like pustular psoriasis. And there's some thought that they're actually the same thing. This just occurs in pregnancy, but, um, but the evidence has not been 100% in that direction at this time. So it's not really touted as, as psoriasis necessarily, but it's treated the same way and looks very similar under the microscope. We're gonna talk about acne. As you probably know, you've probably treated a lot of pregnant patients with, with acne. acne um, 
it may improve, but it may worsen a lot in the third trimester. So the options for women with acne who are pregnant are actually kind of limited. Um, really, the, the topical that is touted to be the most appropriate is azelaic acid, which most women feel does not work with, for them very well. Benzoyl peroxide also, it's a, it's a category C medication. Um, for pregnancy, I've actually used it. I've told people to use it use it very sparingly, um, but just know in terms of the the medication that is really the number one go to medication for sign treatment for an acne for acne in a pregnant woman is azelaic acid. You can yet use erythromycin, um, ethyl succinate. Do not use the acetylate form. It's associated with maternal hepatotoxicity in the second trimester. And also be very careful with your acne pregnant patients using salicylic acid. There have been reports of teratogenic um, effects as well as closure of the ductus arteriosus, so cardiac effects, um, some pulmonary effects in the fetus, um, as well as one case of fetal death. This is a picture of acne during pregnancy. It's really not any different than the acne that you would see, except it might just be more severe, especially in areas that you, the patient was not previously affected, like the chest or the back. And lastly, I'd like to talk about lupus in pregnancy. Um, so systemic lupus um, in pregnancy may flare. 60% of women do flare. Um, first. Firstly, they flare mostly in their cutaneous symptoms, and then secondly, they may also have more joint symptoms. There is an increased risk of miscarriage in these patients, fetal death, preterm delivery, and it's associated with the anti-carter lipin antibodies. Um, the anti-Rho antibodies, which are more common in subacute LE as well as Sjogren's syndrome, are associated with the more the fetal effects, such as the congenital heart block. The treatment is hydroxychloroquine. If you have a patient with lupus who becomes pregnant, you do not need to stop their hydroxychloroquine. Um, and then you can also add prednisolone if you need to. But keeping them on the hydroxychloroquine may control them enough to decrease their steroid needs. This is a picture of um, SLE aggravated by pregnancy. So you can see that this patient has a, an erythematous um, rash on their face. It's not quite mask-like like you would, um, you would expect, but this patient actually had a pre-existing diagnosis. So I just wanted to say thank you. I really appreciate all of you staying for this last hour of, of the, your day. I know it's been a very long conference, and I, I will stick around for any questions. Thank you.